0: Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm, that's ancho rfm click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going, and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you, we see you, and we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we are talking about the Bogart and Bacall classic, Dark Passage, from 1947, with my wonderful guest, Ashley Blanchett. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield, and this week on the show, I have my wonderful friend, Ashley Blanchett, and we are talking about the film Dark Passage from 1947. Ash, what did you think?
1: I thought this movie was so fun. I don't feel like I watch a lot of Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall movies in general. So it was really cool to see them both together. And obviously their chemistry is very, feels very real. So I I thought it was a really good movie. Thanks for picking it.
0: Oh my gosh of course it's been on my list for a long time to do a bogart and Bacall movie specifically with you because we had talked about that how you have not seen a bogart and Bacall film so um my big debate was like well which one do we do i'm gonna have a hard time deciding and i ultimately chose dark passage um because i think it's such a quirky and unusual film like there's so many unique elements to it that that i thought would be really fun to talk about um plus i mean i'm a big old softy for a happy ending so spoiler alert there is a happy ending um but yeah that was why we chose this film so we could talk about bogart and mccall and because it's a quirky noir totally i will dive into the summary of the film for the people at home that might not have seen it but want to hear about it this movie dark passage which i think is a terrible name for this film because it's so generic that you forget it you know yeah i don't know what it should be called. What are we even talking about Like face off, or you know, face off. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Um, So, okay, Dark Passage (laughs) is about this guy Humphrey Bogart, who in the movie is named Vincent Perry. And in the beginning, we see him escaping from a prison, and we learn that it's San Quentin Prison, which is like in San Francisco. And um, what's interesting about this film is we don't really see his face at all we just get the world from his point of view and from like kind of far away shots of his body so we see Vincent Perry escaping from prison um he ends up being rescued by this woman Lauren Bacall while he's on the side of the road and uh Lauren Bacall's like look I'm here to help you I'm gonna get you out of this mess and she does she takes him back to her apartment she gets him away from the police and she explains to him like kind of why she's invested in him, which is that her father was wrongfully committed um, to San Quentin for killing his wife, her stepmother. And she noticed the same things happening to Vincent Perry's character. And she said, I thought that you were innocent. I went to your trial every day. Like, I, I think that this was a mistake that you were there. I believe that you're innocent, which I already said. <laughs> so she's on his side and uh, he wants to figure out like how he can get away and who killed him. So he ends up meeting this really nice cabbie named Sam and at first we're like oh no is this cabbie a bad guy but nah the cabbie's super sweet and the cabbie hooks him up with a plastic surgeon who totally changes his face um <laughs> <laughs> you know just like they do and uh so he leaves with all the bandages on his face and he looks very much like the invisible man like a lot of those vibes (laughs) he was gonna stay with his best buddy in the world his best buddy gets murdered and he's like oh my god there's another murder and I'm gonna get blamed I gotta go so he goes back to Lauren Bacall's house and she takes care of him and then once he tries to leave again because the like whole moral of this is like don't leave Lauren Bacall only bad things happen to you when you leave Lauren Bacall sure right sure he leaves her again he gets picked up by a cop for being weird uh he escapes (laughs) the cop and then gets caught again by at the beginning of the movie um like there was a motorist that kind of picked him up originally that figured out who he was and he like beat him up and knocked him out and this motorist had a distinct uh what is that called like car covers he had distinct car covers so that's how we know who this person is (laughs) so distinct car cover man comes back and is like i'm a small-time crook and i figured out who you were and i'm gonna blackmail you for sixty thousand dollars so um bogart ends up uh besting him and accidentally killing him it was self-defense you know uh, which is how we're like, ah, he's still a good man because that guy was a criminal and he, you know, employed self defense. So that guy's gone, but through that guy, he was messing with his face. You know, he was. Oh, that may- doesn't it make you so scared when they're fighting and he starts like smushing it? And you're like, no, not the face. Oh. <laughs> so yeah um but also the crook is kind of fun too a little bit because he's given him help while he's about to like screw him over like they're still chatting and he's still like so how is quentin for you did you pick up any fun tricks and he's like you know what you should do you should go to Benton, arizona so we still like the crook like a little bit there's a little bit of human in him um anyway so the crook dies but from the crook he found out who the killer was you guys the killer all along was this super obnoxious woman named what's her name (laughs) I forget Madge named Madge as played by the wonderful Agnes Moorhead I freaking love Agnes Moorhead so you know not the greatest like trope but what a good performance uh she's great in this role so Madge was the killer all along and she was the killer because she loved Vincent Perry and Vincent Perry didn't love her back so she was gonna punish him you know because that's totally rational um (laughs) and so he has this really stupid plan you could tell what a great crook he is he's like he goes to Madge's house and hits on her and then she realizes who he is eventually and he's like look I made a confession and you're gonna sign it and she's like no I'm not you're correct I did those things but why on earth would I sign that confession and this never occurred to him he was like oh I thought I'd come here and she totally signed it oh what do, what do I do now and so um Madge is like you're you're never gonna clear your name I'm not gonna let you and then she kills herself she jumps out of a window and uh Humphrey Bogart doesn't know what to do next so he flees for Peru and he gets out and he kind of ca- he calls Lauren Bacall before he goes and he's like look I'm sorry I left but if you like want to be with me just ditch your life here like wait a year maybe wait it wait an undocumented amount of time an undisclosed amount of time and if you love me go meet me at this like outdoor restaurant on the coast of peru and she's like okay and then that at the end of the movie we're not sure if he's gonna escape and we find out he does escape and he's in peru and he's got like piragua and um and then she enters the <laughs> The bar in Peru and they're gonna be happy forever that is that's the film Dark Passage Woo-woo! we did it uh so like let's just dive in with the very first topic of like what makes this so unique especially for a noir um well I mean to me noir is usually like you've got your individualist like anti-hero kind of guy who well no i guess it's not an antihero sometimes it's an antihero but it's like a guy out on his own and a dame that's going to do him wrong he's kind of starts out being an antihero because in the
1: very beginning when he's hitchhiking and he kind of beats that guy up because the the the, the guy that's going to later be the crook who takes yeah. the 60,000 from him um he he realizes it's him and he and he like punches him and like throws him out of the car and i feel like it's very violent and it sort of sets him up to be we, we, we're not we're not sure that, you know, he's a good guy in the beginning.
0: But we know he's not cold-blooded because he didn't kill him. So I would say that's, that's the other true. part of that. It's like we learn he's going to do what it takes to get out, but that he's not going to murder anybody. So I feel like that's what we see in that. Also, you brought in something that I kept thinking about, which is, so what's so cool about this movie is the point of view. It's got great camera work. So because it's a movie about a guy that's totally going to change his face like 37 minutes in, we can't see Bogart's face for the first 37 minutes. So the way they kind of do this is um, they show us a lot of his camera work from his point of view. So the part that Ashley's talking about, when we we see him get in the car in the beginning, we see the whole situation as he's assessing it. So we see the man in the car, we see him looking ahead, where they're going, and when he punches him, it's actually almost awkward because we see the fists go into the frame, but they're so tight, like no one can really punch that way. But I was wondering how they did that choreography with the camera because it's so unique, so cool. I don't know that a film had been told this way before from, like, a first-person point of view.
1: Yeah, I I like what you were saying, that it was, like, experimental, and who knows, really, if it it works. But it's definitely kind of cool that they were taking risks like that. It was interesting to watch because it kind of reminded me of self-tapes. I felt like the whole beginning of the movie was just, like, a bunch of actors needing to, like... You know, because, like, when you make a movie, sometimes you have to, like, pretend like you're talking to the person for different shots. And, like, you know, the person is if, – if they're a nice actor, they'll, like, stand off camera and, like, feed you their, their lines. But, like, the whole movie being like that, I think, you know, obviously doesn't really usually happen. And I felt like some people were better at it than others. Lauren Bacall was obviously insanely good at it. But other people, like his best friend, I felt like, you know, it's really hard to – I don't know, make that feel believable when you're just looking almost directly at a camera and trying to feel like a normal person. It's so much easier to react with someone who is sitting in a room with you, you know? Um, And I think some people were more successful than others.
0: And it takes a minute to translate. I think it's almost like having subtitles because it's such a different way of storytelling that we're not used to. It's so much of the actor's attention focused on you because as an audience, we are the camera and we're so not used to actors talking into the lens. So it's almost like being on stage, like when an actor breaks the fourth wall and delivers a soliloquy or a monologue to the audience, it has, it's not a monologue. They're like, they're talking to us directly. And there is something a little bit jarring in that, that you have to like work through and get used to as you're watching it. Um, But I think something cool about that too is you completely fall in love with Lauren Bacall because I don't know what it is. She, you're right, she totally gets it. But there's us looking at her this way, and I I don't know, her attitude toward the camera. There's something about it that you, you as the audience member, completely fall in love with her, but also don't know who to trust as a result of it being shot this way, I think. So what you're saying with the friend, how you felt he wasn't as good at that technique or whatever this is of acting, I almost felt like, can we trust him because of this way of shooting? Because he was so awkward. That was how I was feeling, you know? Although I did mark down, oh, he's really cute. He's so adorable. Like, he was very adorable, I felt. He looked just like he was so out of his comfort zone. And, I mean, maybe
1: part of that, you're right, does read because you're not supposed to know if he's a bad guy. You're not supposed to know how comfortable he is in the situation. Obviously, it's kind of a crazy situation going on. So his discomfort kind of can read that way, too. But I felt like it was just sort of like, there's nowhere for any of these actors to hide when they're, it's just them and the camera and looking directly at the camera and, you know, just gonna completely read you when it's a self-tape sort of situation like that
0: yes you have to be you have to know know your character know yourself and be confident know your thoughts you know your thoughts and that the people that pull it off the best I think I mean I think the surgeon was fantastic the plastic surgeon who he goes to, oh yeah, was such a good actor, and I think he handled that the best of anybody. I mean, it's hard to say better than Lauren Mccall. I don't know about that, but he, I thought he was so phenomenal at that way of acting. And then when they had that weird dream sequence, he was the one that like got the message about the dream sequence. He played into the creepiness. He like understood the memo. So I was like, kudos to the surgeon whose name I do not know, or I did not write it down but I thought he was great. Yeah, I agree. And
1: I felt like that part was so fascinating because it was like, this reminds me of like the Twilight Zone type of 1960s movies where we're really trying to go out of our way to like, you know, film noir. We're really trying to like kind of like scare people, right? And the, you know, people that come to see this movie in 1947 have just finished World War II. And the idea of being disfigured um i think is like probably really played on the psyche of you know the nightmares of of the culture of pe- of people you know just like remembering what it was like and they even they even say it like when he puts the towel over the camera and he's kind of talking to the camera like it's about to happen to you not not Humphrey Bogart but to the audience and he puts the towel over the camera like he's putting it over your face and he says don't worry I have anesthesia just like I used in the war that's what he says right before the dream sequence starts and I'm just like oh it really must have been particularly freaky for people who really did get disfigured or really were afraid that they were going to go away and come back with a different face
0: i was not even thinking that so thank you so much for bringing that in like <laughs> yes that is an awesome perspective that i had not considered and yeah, a perspective i had not considered till you just said that was that humphrey bogart was in world war I. Oh, he was in the navy and he fought in World War One, and has, like, that scar. He Humphrey Bogart famously has a scar on his face that no one totally knows where or how it came from. There's all these, like, myths and stories about, like, where his scar came from and if it came from the war or if it came from childhood. or So he himself, and his lisp wasn't natural. That came from an accident he had, too. So Humphrey Bogart himself had been, like, I wouldn't call that disfigured, but had been, like, altered in this way. So I hadn't considered him in this this idea of like, you're getting plastic surgery to totally change your face and identity, or the fact that veterans who had just come home from World War II were going through this as well, looking in the mirror and seeing someone different, or I, that had not been pieced together for me. So thank you for bringing that element in. Yeah, it must've been
1: scary to watch this movie the first half, but then the second half when she you know sees the new him, And she is excited to like see him again for the first time. That must've like been very therapeutic for all the people that You know, we're waiting for their loved ones to come back and and love them anyway, despite whatever change had happened to them. You know,
0: that whole scene when he like they take off his bandages and he's got the beard and Lauren Bacall kind of looks at him. He's like, well, what do you think? And she's kind of unsure. And then she says the thing about like, well, you know, shave your face and let's see how I feel after. That's almost a nod to um, a movie they did earlier to have and have not. in that movie she talks about like I like a man with a clean shave so I I almost feel like that was a little wink to that movie um, of them working together because she she asks him to shave twice in this movie (laughs) when he first comes in she's like
1: stay a while and he's like uh no I'm gonna get out of your hair and she's like take a shower and shave and then like when he takes the mask off she's like so shave and I'll be right back to like see you again and I'm like this is a lot of times that she's asking him to shave so that's fascinating that like
0: that's their thing i think that might have been put in there specifically because of the early reference so it was like uh, double wink then like hey remember when they fell in love another movie wink <laughs>
1: like, oh my god like these two really love each other and it's because he shaves and she likes it
0: i personally liked him better with the stubble which surprised me i you know yeah, i'm a
1: stubble girl to myself
0: I'm, I'm a mix I'm whatever looks best on the person okay, and i that's think fair, that's fair. looks better with the beard personally sh- oh Personally, I know that's an unpopular opinion. I thought he looked great with his little beard. I thought, oh, that's nice. You no, look good. you're right.
1: You're right. It's because he's kind of rugged. There's something really great about him, like, not being completely put together.
0: Yeah. It's attractive to us when he's going through it. Yes. Uh, you always open doors for me. I'm like, I want to go through that. But wait, I have to go back to the other door, which I remembered, which is that that one dream sequence, something I noticed this time was that um when they're going through he's having all these nightmares so before the doctor operates on him he gives a whole speech about like I could botch your face you know if I didn't like you I could botch it which is terrifying and you're right might also play on like the what people from back then were going through especially feeling maybe that they had been botched or you know that Yeah. yeah maimed um so that was terrifying to go into that but i what i noticed from that was every single person he was seeing like had multiple phases and was speaking in a scary voice but he kept seeing lauren bacall she was the only figure that wasn't moving and that was solid and she would come through and say something comforting like each time that got him through that so i was like oh i love that even in his like psyche he's seeing her as being solid and it's like she's getting him through this and it's gonna be okay so we've got that tie-in true love you had mentioned too we love humphrey bogart when he's like going through it i really enjoy humphrey bogart but i do not always find him sexy as a you know <laughs> human woman i shouldn't say that there's other ways of saying human it. woman a human adult cisgender heterosexual <laughs> woman i don't find Humphrey Bogart. i don't always find him attractive um but uh there's this movie called the petrified forest that the writer of this delmar dave's also wrote that i feel like you would love you've seen it i bet it's betty davis and leslie howard i thought i was gonna say i feel like you brought it up before but maybe i just know it from
1: loving Betty Davis
0: I feel like you probably you totally probably have seen it it's not my favorite movie but it's a fun movie it's like an interesting movie to watch it's got some stuff in it that's good but um Humphrey Bogart's in it and it's the only time I've ever been like oh shit you're sexy he plays a gangster in it but he, the way they costume him he's in this like tiny little vest that gives him like a Dorito V And he's like, so in, he's like waiting for his girlfriend to show up. Like he will not leave. He will die because he is not leaving without his lady. He's an escaped murderer. And he's like, no, we're not going to go. I'm waiting for her. But he, that's the only time I was ever like, whoa, you look very sexy. And that was kind of like the start of his whole career. But I wanted to bring that in just because I was like curious how you felt about the Humphrey Bogart sexiness situation. Cause I feel like he's viewed as such a leading man, but it's not necessarily like there's something about him that you're drawn to, but it's not like necessarily sexiness. Like he's not a Brad Pitt.
1: Yeah. There were so many men in this time period that like were not actually like physically that attractive, I would say. Like this was a time period where women were like supposed to be the pretty ones and men were like very separate. Like I can think of like many Hollywood men that probably were attractive for other reasons besides being physically attractive
0: yeah it's like their authenticity is what's attractive yeah because like spencer tracy humphrey bogart they have this quality about them that feels real and that that's what makes them leading men but then you're right the women something different is expected of the women
1: yeah the women are like there to be ornamental and and beautiful and they have to be beautiful in order to even just like be considered to you know be on the screen Whereas. Except for Betty Davis. Just like only except for Betty Davis, I feel. But um, but I whereas I feel like guys, you know, even John Wayne or like I, I feel like they're you know, as long as they were like capable and manly and, you know, strong and like charismatic, it mattered I think more than being like a Brad Pitt or a George Clooney attractive person. Which is not fair.
0: You're saying that, and I'm realizing the women that we do value, the strong women, I mean, Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, to me, are a very similar relationship to Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart. Like, totally. there are similar vibes about both of them, but there are also, like, age differences. And Katherine Hepburn did end up having a crazy long career, but that's because of her own, like, ingenuity. Like, she was canceled at the age of 30, and if she had not fought like hell, she would have never been able to come back. And I feel like... um, Lauren Bacall didn't always have the career she could have had, potentially. Well, I don't know. I, she's Lauren Bacall had a very good career, and she did win two Tonys. So never mind. She was successful. I'm not gonna be like she wasn't successful.
1: She wasn't as successful as you would think she had the potential to be. Seeing these older movies and seeing like how much the camera loved her and seeing how much of a star she was, you would think like, oh, she's somebody that you would you would think she'd be in movie after movie after movie.
0: And I think she ended up being selective about her movies. And I think she, because she was partners with Bogart, she was financially secure, you know, like the two of them were What wealthy. was their relationship like? Were they married? My like, gosh, I'm so happy to share all of this with you. This is like my favorite. So um, <laughs> these were like two of the early people that I was into. And so it's funny, because as I was going through the movies, I was like, oh, I haven't seen these in so long. I wonder what adult me would think, because it's been so long since I've seen their movies together. But Kid Me loved it. Um, kid Me being like 14 year old me. Um, anyway, Bogart and Bacall here's the whole story. of They have like a beautiful love affair. So they meet on set of Howard Hawks's To Have and Have Not when she's 19 years old and he is 44 years old. Yeah, um, Yeah, 25 year age difference. It's the only time in history it's been acceptable. I'm convinced because it was a true love story. Like she has such an old soul about her. I feel like she, they probably escaped a lot of
1: scrutiny because she was talking down here and she was tall and she like, probably seemed closer to his age than she was Well,
0: and he was also not a known philanderer do you know what i mean so it's like he doesn't have a reputation either for like consistently going after younger women or going after anybody at all right okay so i think between those two things that's kind of what made it less less gross um but he was married at the time um so he's married when they meet they meet on this movie um howard hawks didn't like howard hawks loved like guiding his leading ladies so he kind of hated that uh humphrey bogart took her more under his wing and was able to kind of guide her along um but uh her role in that movie was kind of what defined her persona so actually i'll talk about her persona before i talk about them so lauren bacall was a model at 16. um she's from the bronx uh, and her parents got divorced when she was really young so she ended up taking her mom's name her name was betty bacall (laughs) uh, lauren bacall her name that was her name and um so She's a model. She's on the cover of Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. At 18, she's in a Broadway play. She gets, you know, talent scouted. And um, they put her in this movie. It's her film debut. And she is just like so nervous. And they want to come up with a persona for her. So, you know, they pick, she gets to pick her name, her last name. They pick her first name, I think. I forget. They come up with Lauren Bacall. And um, they decide she's going to talk very low. So that was not her natural voice. She had a higher voice. They taught her how to, talk low that's crazy and um she so she like had all these voice lessons and did all this stuff and then um howard hawks's wife slim gave her kind of her look like she dressed her in clothes that she thought would be very stylish and cool and elegant um so she was kind of like trained for this also side note she dated kirk douglas when they were young and in acting school and i just think that's a very lovely tidbit like she's taking classes at ada and like dating a young kirk douglas while she is also very young so there you go what a life what a life um so yes she's on this movie set she's 19 years old she's so nervous that she's like shaking and she's using this new like lower register of her voice so um her first scene that she's shooting is the famous one where they pan to her and um she has that line of like you know how to whistle don't you steve you just put your lips put together your lips and together blow. and blow <laughs> exactly so she does this thing because she's so nervous and her like hands are shaking and her voice is shaking she like tucks her chin in and looks down and then looks up and that became like her signature that was called the look and it was like Lauren Bacall's thing having a deep voice kind of like tucking your head down and then looking up seductively so like she has a persona at 19 because of nerves and a voice coach you know what I mean and star quality obviously whoa so yeah that's Lauren Bacall Humphrey Bogart's super into it They start having an affair. Um, The next movie they do is The Big Sleep in 1946, and I think that's when he's getting his divorce. They end up getting married, but they, like, legitimately love each other. Like, it is a Hollywood love story. They are in it for the long haul. They are together. And I know they had some issues because of his alcoholism, uh, but that you know like they they're legendary they truly loved each other and then when he passed away in 1957 from esophageal cancer she was heartbroken (gasps) um, because he was the love of her life she only
1: had 10 years with him yeah how old was she like 30 when he died like so young right that's a bummer she'd be like 32 or 33 I mean if you said she was 19 when they met yeah yeah and he was forty-four. That by the time he's fifty-seven, she's in her thirties. But <sighs> that's that's uh, that's really beautiful that they had that yeah. that time together, and they were so happy.
0: That's great. They had two kids together, and do you want to know what they named their kids? What? They named their boy Stephen Humphrey Bogart because of the line she had about Steve, because his name was Steve in the first movie they did together, where they fell in love.
1: Oh my God!
0: Yes, so they named their first kid, steven and then they named their second kid. Leslie Howard Bogart who she was a girl and they named it after Leslie Howard because Humphrey Bogart was very good friends with Leslie Howard
1: <laughs> Are you kidding me? No. They named their daughter the name of his boy best friend fully the full name like not even like Leslie Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> no. Leslie Howard Wow, Leslie Howard must have been like, cool, so you love me. That's like too much, I feel, personally, but maybe we well, time. Well, and now
0: I'm just realizing, maybe because they also met on the set of a Howard Hawks film, the Howard was not just Leslie Howard, but like Leslie Howard Hawks Bogart, maybe.
1: Okay, I think it would have been cool to name their daughter Hawks. That would have been very cool. They did <laughs> not think that far. Hawks Howard Bogart. That would have been uh, cool. They weren't thinking. I got notes.
0: <laughs> I got notes for you, Lauren <laughs> yeah. McCall. Hit me up. Um, so what else makes this quirky and unique? I mean, we talked about that there's a happy ending at the end of a noir. Oh, and yeah. And then I love that the way that they... So we were talking about how, like, the point of view was awkward sometimes, or it took a minute to adjust. I like that we still get breaks from it. Like, I like that it was a gimmick, but then they gave us little breaths of air to, like, reset. So instead of it always being point of view, they sometimes focus on other actors, Um Like when Humphrey Bogart is in a cab, we're not like looking always at the cab driver from Humphrey Bogart's point of view. We're seeing the cab driver head on and Humphrey Bogart is in shadows. So we can have like a real scene with acting Mm -hmm. that's not so, you know, point of view. And then every time we get a long shot, it's out of the point of view. Um, So they find opportunities to switch it up, which are very, you know. Helpful. We need them. Helpful. That's a good word for it. (laughs) Uh, So something else I love about this movie is like the style of it because it's like textured differently. Like it's really detailed, and I I remember when I was thinking back on it, I couldn't remember if it was in color or not, and I realized that it's because one they talk about the use of color a lot. Like they mentioned browns and oranges and all of these things that have color, but also the way the film is textured, uh, it makes it so tactile. There's like I leave almost thinking I've like I've seen color. I can't quite explain it. But it's it's really um really gorgeously designed, I think.
1: I think I wasn't paying enough attention to the texture of it, but uh I definitely like loved all the, like I loved Lauren Bacall's costumes.
0: They definitely used everything to its advantage. Like the set stuff I was talking about, like they'd have like a bonsai plant and then the shadow of the bonsai plant behind it. Or they'd have- Oh yeah, that was creepy. Lauren Bacall's apartment was the most gorgeous apartment with like a spiral staircase and a fireplace that's like a corner fireplace. So they have all these like details that are very, you feel like you can feel it. Even her record player is like opalescent. Like they never shy away from making things look like you wanna touch them. But then their costumes are so detail oriented as well because they tell everything about the people. So everything Lauren Bacall wears is like simple, elegant, not fussy, I can pack up and go. Like even at the end of the film when they're seeing each other again for the first time, she's not wearing a gown, she's wearing like a jacket and like a basic skirt like she's very um practical. what's the word practical yes and then Agnes Moorhead the very first time we see her she's literally in leopard print like could not be screaming louder oh wow they mention her orange car how she loves everything orange and loud and um it's funny because Lauren Bacall's atmosphere her apartment is so cool and comfortable and Agnes Moorhead's is so stiff like you don't almost don't expect that of her because she she has all these kind of louder clothes and then you go to her apartment and it's a little more stodgy. The details tell us about the people. So mm. Madge is trying to be very respectable and high class. And she wants you to know that she's like loud and sexy and obnoxious.
1: <laughs> Can you explain to me why she threw jumped? Because I thought she fell out the window. And so it was huge for me when you just finally explained to me that she threw herself out the window because that I was like, how did she even manage to fall out the window just now? She was screaming about how, like, she would never tell and she would never send the
0: papers. And then she just kills herself. So the way I read it, they never officially say she kills herself. In fact, Humphrey Bogart says, like, she fell out the window or like, you know, she it was an accident. But I think it was that she saw what was going on and she was like, oh my God, one, he knows I did it. I am like caught kind of, but two, like I'm not going to let him ever be free. If he doesn't have me, he doesn't have evidence. I am the only evidence. So I am going to destroy the evidence. And the only way to destroy the evidence is to jump out the window. So I thought that's but what she did. they didn't make
1: that clear.
0: They did not.
1: I wish that they had just been like, you'll never get out of this. You'll like, I like show her being like really nuts and show that like, she's really desperate to like, make sure that his life is miserable and then make it clear that she is deliberately throwing herself out the window. But the way they did it, it looked like it could have been an accident, but like, how do you fall out of a glass window by accident? Like, it makes more sense that she did it on purpose, but they just didn't make it look like she did.
0: Suicide was so taboo in the 1940s, especially like in the yeah, 40s 50s. Yeah, you right. It's a taboo subject. Maybe they can't show it for the censors or explain it because of the Hays code. Um and maybe they do maybe they wanted to make it ambiguous. To me it makes the most sense that she actively killed herself. That's that's what it yeah. felt like to me, but yeah, maybe they couldn't show us that because of what the time it was in, you know.
1: Like the scream Everything about it to me, I was like, wait, what just happened here?
0: She like dives behind that curtain. That was not a natural move. Yeah. How amazing is Agnes Moorhead's performance? One of my favorite moments in the whole movie is when Humphrey Bogart goes to her place and we've seen her be like, quote unquote, shrewish the whole time. Like obnoxious, in the way, hard. And so when he goes to her house and he th- she thinks he's hitting on her, she turns on this, like, lighter, softer character and is very smooth and flirtatious. And I love that you see, like, her juxtaposition. Like, I love that you see her whole range as a character. And when she finds out he's really Vincent Perry, the moment that she has.
1: Yeah, the horror that shows on her face is amazing when she's freaking out that it's really him. Um, when she starts screaming, I, like, I remember thinking, like, is she a theater actor? She's such... A different person than so many other actors of the time period that it's really cool to watch her in anything she does um I looked her up after the movie because I was so interested in her and one of the things I thought was so interesting was she well first of all she was born in 1900 being born in 1900 that's crazy like you're you're how old you're like 12 or 13 when like the Titanic goes down like she was she was one year younger than Bogart he
0: was 1899 he was born in the 1800s
1: I don't know why, but the, each decade, man, it feels, like, so crazy. Like, so much progress happened in that first half of this century. Like, you know, from being in the 1900s to being in the 40s, like, that's a yeah. huge difference. Huge. Um, anyway, but um, she was very religious, apparently, and, like, or apparently she'd, like, bring a Bible to, like, the studio, and, like, she, you know, she always had a Bible in her hand or whatever. Who knows what what's real or what's not, but... um, it was kind of ironic that she became the most famous for being in Dora on Bewitched because she was such a Christian. So it's so funny because
0: I didn't know that about her. We did a whole piece about her. So people at home, if you want to hear more about Agnes Moorhead in general, she was like the queen of the radio play. So we did a whole episode about radio plays where she was the oh, star cool. of that play. Um, and she's fantastic in it. She's like a very, very great voice actress. So um, check out her episode. It was two by Lucille Fletcher um So go check that out from our earlier seasons, and we talk about her more. But I didn't—maybe I forgot. I don't remember her being religious. I just remember her becoming an actress later, and how inspiring I find that. Because, you know, most actresses don't get to start out in their forties and be successful. Like she, her totally. film career started with like Citizen Kane when she was forty-two. Like, Whoa. that's incredible. And you're right; she was a stage actress with Orson Welles. She came up with the Mercury Theater in his company. Mm-hmm. So that's her background. So that would make sense that that you would kind of, I guess, feel that the theatrical the theatricality. Well, maybe of her.
1: I'm just like particularly like looking for that type of stuff. Like yeah. in this moment of my life, I'm like,
0: oh, <laughs> theater,
1: theater acting, don't do that. Um, but <laughs> but I mean, she's 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 brilliant. She's a brilliant character actor, and that's I agree with you that like the fact that it all happened in her 40s or started to happen in her 40s, and it was she was so successful. That's always wonderful to think about.
0: So you hadn't seen this before. Like, I went in knowing it was Madge, you know, and I don't remember a time when I didn't know it was Madge because I saw this when I was younger. Did you know it was Madge the whole time? Did you know she was the killer?
1: No. Okay. No, I didn't. All right.
0: Well, because now, you know how, like, once you know, looking back, you're like, oh my God, they make it so obvious because what they literally do in this movie is everyone that could be bad, they give them one good quality or one nice little perk. And the only person that doesn't have that is Madge not one person has a nice thing to say about her in this film every every single character hates her and says something mean about her and um like this film is a film that shows all kinds of people in all different lights like so even the crook has a nice side because he's trying to help bogart a little like oh go go to Bend, arizona and you'll get out and it'll be okay so like, even though he's the worst he at least offers something nice the character of bob who lauren bacall could potentially be dating he's very sweet about like you know what okay i i will move to the second position i will not fight for your attention and time anymore i shall take madge away isn't madge the worst um so i feel like now they're all just pointing at her that's Um, fascinating and i do hate that they're like hating her for like her ostentatiousness because i'm like eh, i don't got a problem with bright orange cards and leopard prints i think they're pretty cool but yeah she seems pretty pretty rotten and once you see it you can't unsee it you're like oh it's so they really just point all fingers right to her. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's such a good point.
1: Um, I didn't pick up on all of that. I think I was so busy trying to remember people's names and in, in Noir there's like, you know, there's so much exposition in, in this piece, I feel like there was so much talking about like what had happened before the movie started that I was just, I was just trying to remember like who the characters were and like what Lauren Bacall was talking about and, who she was referencing when she said Madge, you know?
0: I think the reason this isn't like one of the uh, stereotypical noirs or like a noir that people cite a lot is because it is, you don't watch it for the mystery. It's not a film about the mystery, I think. I think if you're watching this to be like, oh, I really want a good noir mystery. This is not your film. This is like a very interesting, cool, fun film to watch. It's clever, but the, the... Mystery isn't clever. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. you're right. There's a lot of exposition, and then they drop in the stuff about the guy with the car. and you know, they add all these extra like knots that you need to tie up because, you know, they want to keep you on your toes and they want you to be uncertain of who you can trust. Um, but it is a lot to take in. And um my biggest beef with this movie is how dumb Humphrey Bogart is as a criminal. He literally does every stupid, dumb, wrong thing that you can do. The only time we think he might be a smart criminal is in the beginning when he's like, how many minutes do I have before they catch me? That's when at the beginning we're like, okay, maybe you're maybe you're a good criminal. Maybe you're smart. But he does everything. Like, he touches everything and gets his fingerprints on everything. When Madge jumps out the window, he <laughs> looks over the ledge and doesn't leave right away. Like, he's always doing it wrong. Because he's not
1: good at it because he's not like... He's not really a Real criminal. criminal. At heart. He
0: could pick any name in the world when he goes to check into a hotel. And he uses the name that he just told a police officer he ran away from. You
1: know?
0: <laughs> like I just
1: He doesn't change clothes. And he knows for sure that people are looking at his clothes. Yeah, no, he's not good at it, but I think that's that's deliberate.
0: Yeah. You're right. I mean, it is deliberate to show that he like isn't good at it, but it still is a little painful.
1: Because even the the like um, small time criminal that wants his money and to blackmail him says to him, like, you are so bad at this. That's how I found you.
0: That's what he says. Yeah, to Yeah, it's true. He does. I
1: definitely think it's like a deliberate like character choice that they put in the script that like this guy is really not great at this thing. He could be at, he could be you, you know, yes. he's a normal guy.
0: But even I if I saw a dead body, wouldn't put my fingerprints all over the crime weapon. I wouldn't be like, "Let me pick up this trumpet and touch it."
1: But if it's like your best friend in the entire world and you are freaking out because you don't know anybody else in the world around you and you're lost in the grief of it you might not be thinking about your fingerprints at that moment
0: and this is a different time when they didn't have like law and order to watch you're right they just <laughs> didn't think about it and I did love the point that Lauren Bacall makes where she's like you can change your your face but you can't change your fingerprints like they're gonna know they're gonna know where you are and I was like yeah Lauren Bacall you're right that's correct
1: I heard something from like some police person that was, like, in real life, like, they don't use fingerprints to oh. find people because um, it's not, like, there's not, like, a database of, like, fingerprints in the world, you know what Wait, I mean? But like, I
0: thought that there was, but don't they, like, take no. our fingerprints and isn't, it like, in a computer?
1: No. No, who, do you remember that? Do you remember anyone ever taking your fingerprints?
0: I th- my iPhone does. There's no, like, database of, fingerprints no, but don't they like, all the take humans it with the in the ink world and like put it in with the ink Ooh, the, the cops right i'm just saying
1: like in real life i'm not sure like that's like the way that they like typically find the,
0: the that's criminals. like step like, 12 you're saying
1: yeah because okay. like it's not it's not like always helpful like it's not always like um i guess it's not always in the system or it's not always like as easy as law and order makes you believe that like it is to just be like fingerprints now we found them like that's not like how it really works i guess um but i guess you're right he had been to prison so maybe they had had his fingerprints but because in
0: my head that's how it works like you don't watch your prints in the system because then they'll know you forever and track you but they can track (laughs) us with their phones so really does anything matter
1: oh yeah oh yeah oh my god I parked my car and my phone was like you parked your car and I was like how
0: do you know that
1: what makes you think I live here like you know my phone knows way too much yeah
0: oh that is really interesting that that's I really did believe that fingerprints were like a very common thing reliable I was thinking about it being a new technology for the time though because I was like "Ooh, maybe there's like for the time there's like new ways of checking for prints and stuff Mm. because I feel like the past you know this is everyone does the joke of this like John Mulaney has this in his act about like how you could get away with murder back in the day because they'd be like remove everything from the scene get this blood out of here we don't want blood (laughs) we'll put chalk around the body so we'll know where it was like um so also wait they this is just a random side note but they put the crime scene picture with like blood gushing out of his head in the newspaper and I was like that would not have happened back in the day they would never put like a crime scene photo of a, of a dead body with yeah, blood gushing out of their point. head in the newspaper Thank good you. point this is another side note of details I also love the detail when Agnes Moorhead she's there in her apartment and she's flirting with Bogart and she picks up a pillow and there's a second where you're like is she gonna try to smother him and then she puts it down on the floor and she sits on it. It's like a sexy move and you're like, oh, "One, I'm stealing that move." Two, ooh, that was a fun <laughs> moment of like, "Oh my god, does she know and is she going to try to kill him with a pillow?"
1: Oh my god, she's so cool. She is such a weirdo.
0: Also, I feel we've not talked about Lauren Bacall enough in general. Just she is wonderful in this movie. She's wonderful in general. I very much love her she lives on after bogart so let me share after bogey oh tell me about that yeah so bogey passes away oh also they did um a radio show together called bold venture that they still play on the classic radio station so you can like (laughs) still hear their work and it's basically like to have and have not over and over again it's like that same story that they tell in different locations like over and over again oh my god Um, but so okay she ends up she dates frank sinatra after humphrey bogart's death and they get engaged And then it gets broken off and there's like disputes over why, but apparently it was broken off by Frank Sinatra because he thought that she had leaked news of their secret engagement to the press. And she did not. Um, One of her friends did. What was Frank Sinatra going through?
1: That's what I want to know.
0: Right? If you have Lauren Bacall, you don't just let her go. Big mistake. Huge. (laughs) Okay, so she eventually, she also marries Jason Robards, uh, the actor. Uh, they were married from 1961 to 1969 and their marriage ended in divorce because of his alcoholism they did have a son together named sam robarts who became an actor um and she won okay so academy award wise she won uh, an honorary academy award in 2010 and she was nominated for the mirror has two faces classic i remember
1: that Barbara, she was so happy about that. She was like, look what I
0: did for Lauren Bacall. And I do love that movie. Great movie. Um, But I didn't realize she won two Tonys for musicals. So I knew she won for Applause, which is basically for anyone at home. Applause is the musical version of um, All About Eve with music by Charles Strauss, who wrote Annie. So that's Applause. Have you ever done anything from Applause, Ash?
1: No, I never have, but I should look into it because Charles
0: Strauss, he don't make no bad songs. <laughs> but this was the one that surprised me. She was in Woman of the Year. Like, we just did our podcast on that last year. Which is the same thing. It's like, I'm a strong woman, and I'm with a man, and he can't handle that I'm too much. Yeah. yeah right? I struggle because I'm so, like, powerful as a woman. Um, But I didn't, one, I did not know that was a musical. Two, I am shocked that she won two musical awards. Um, She herself joked about how when she started singing for applause... Um, she had to do like vocal training for it and stuff because I would mentioned earlier she had learned she had to learn how to speak in a lower register that wasn't her natural voice and she ended up damaging her voice a lot by speaking in her unnatural register so by the time she makes applause her voice kind of has changed and she's lost a lot of upper register plus she smokes she sang for somebody and they were like you're very musical, you sound like a musical moose. And that was like the joke of her career, that Lauren Bacall sounds like a musical moose.
1: Oh my God, that makes perfect sense. She
0: sounds cool in the soundtrack and stuff, like it's written for her, (laughs) but I just can't. Like that, when I hear that, that's what I think about. Really, that's why I wanted to talk about her more so I could tell you about her musical moose.
1: Oh my God, thank you for sharing that. From now on, whenever I see her in anything, I will be picturing her as a moose and I think (laughs) that's a really great image to have.
0: Do you want me to tell you about Humphrey Bogart? duh because his life is so different than you would think it would be wait if if i was like ashley tell me about humphrey bogart's childhood what would you say what would you think his childhood would be
1: okay well the hint that i have is that he's born in 1899 so i feel like whatever it was it probably
0: wasn't easy you know what you're incorrect (laughs) oh so he was was rich he was rich yes so it's shocking you would never expect this because okay. he's such like a man of the people but the reason he is a man of the people is because he like hated the freaking hypocrisy of the rich so his dad was a surgeon and his mom was a successful illustrator she like worked for um the magazine Suffragette and did like ads for stuff she made more money than the surgeon dad by the way <gasps> what yes yeah, so he like grew up with a very powerful woman you know as a mom in the 18 whatevers yeah wow. right in the early 1900s and uh she- he grew up on the west side of new york city um he went to boarding school uh, like so he had this like very fancy life i know his parents did not get along and he was like my mother showed us no affection she just wanted us to be strong no one like hugged in my family <laughs> or like was Yikes. sweet to each other so you know that was a thing but still Typical rich people. He went to Yale, dropped out after one semester, ended up joining the Navy in World War I in 1918. Um, He had a lifelong love of boating. Like the whole thing about his adulthood when he was a movie star is he'd be on his boat like 30 weekends out of the year. And the other thing was Lauren Bacall hated boats. They made her seasick, but she loved him so much she would go on his boats because they loved each other. See... More than words. Um, but he, because he had grown up around rich people, he rebelled against it, and he really hated the whole, like, phonies, snobs kind of thing. After the Navy, when he gets back, um, he eventually starts to work as an actor. He works on Broadway from 1922 to 1935, so he really, like, you know, gains his – what's the – what's yeah. this phrase? He likes
1: his he sea he legs, if you likes- will.
0: <gasps> Gosh, that was really good. So uh, he's very much influenced by Spencer Tracy. They become friends on the first picture he ever does called Up the River, uh, which was a John Ford film. So, you know, just a small-time director with a small-time leading man, it's fine. Um, (laughs) He uses his real name. Humphrey Bogart is his real name because he's like, I got street cred as an actor with it on Broadway, so I'm going to keep using it. And they were like, okay, we hate it.
1: Humphrey's so cool. I'm going to keep that name. That's a great name, Humphrey. Only, Only name that's better than Humphrey is Leslie Howard. I'm going to name my children both of those names if I ever get a chance.
0: Stephen Humphrey Bogart, Leslie Howard Bogart. And they are the only people that can like pull it off. I've never met another Humphrey, but Humphrey Bogart, <laughs> what a strong name. But if you were like, hi, I'm Humphrey, I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't pull it off.
1: You really can't pull that name off unless you're him. You're so right. Humphrey. He's
0: famously called Bogey and apparently Spencer Tracy was the one that like coined that and started it on their first film don't you love that oh
1: they're so cute they're
0: so cute and then they like have mirrored like love lives it's be- well except for Spencer Tracy was more of a philanderer so never mind um anywho okay <laughs> so he's one of the most famous actors of all time I mean you all know him at home for like Casablanca the Maltese Falcon the African Queen Treasure of the Sierra Madre um he won an Oscar for African Queen and he was nominated for Casablanca and for the cane Mutiny um so that's Humphrey Bogart
1: he died pretty young huh
0: he did he smoked and drank a lot and I re- if I did not read um the book Catherine Hepburn wrote about her time making the African Queen but she wrote a book and apparently what she said in the book was that every single person who went to Africa got sick because their bodies weren't used to the water. The only two people who didn't get sick were Humphrey Bogart and John Huston because they didn't drink the water. (laughs) You know, because they were alcoholics. Ooh, it's rough. Um,
1: Hey, that works out for you in that instance.
0: Yeah, it worked out for him then. Did not work out for him with the esophageal.
1: Like like by the time he was only 47 years old and dying. Yeah, damn. You
0: know, (laughs) I do want to just name that Delmar Dave's wrote the screenplay for this and directed it um and the thing that I think he's most famous for is writing an affair to remember so I feel like that's <gasps> why this has such a great I love, love that story. movie. can we it's watch the movie next I've already done it on the podcast but I would watch it with you in real life
1: periodically I just have to watch it because I really just love it The I don't know why I think the chemistry is so good because I don't really believe those people like really cared for each other at all but I mean, they probably didn't hate each other, but I feel like it was very professional, but it just, something about the two of them, you're just like, whoa, like I feel this. I don't know. I I was like 13 when I saw that movie for the first time and I just like watched it in the loop over and over and over again for a little while. I know every word of that movie. It's so good.
0: Well, what's funny is I get vibes of that movie in this movie. And it's almost, oh, it's do? like, I do. I think it's because of two things. I think it's because of the chemistry. And I think it's because of, like, the mise-en-scene. Like, I think the textures are similar. The way, the looks, Mm. the backgrounds, the feel, the tactileness of both. um, I I can feel that in it.
1: Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, you definitely feel their chemistry, for sure. Yes.
0: The use of the color orange in both is a big deal. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, and Affair to Remember is, like, excellent. And yeah, you get, like, little glimpses of that in this, I think, with, like, the snap, crackle, pop of the... The love story and the chemistry and the fact that like the love story is the ultimate goal of this in the end
1: and in both of the movies you they're kind of they kind of love each other with no explanation but you buy it you really believe that you know a lot of times you you really need to like be like well did they get to know each other like I don't really believe that they could just like suddenly just like be in love and have it be real but in both of those movies I just feel like The way it's written, or maybe it's the actors, or maybe a conglomeration, a lot of different things, but you just buy it. You're just like, oh, yeah, they just, they're, they just, it's some type of chemical reaction. Their, their souls just match and they're just in love and there's like no turning back. And
0: I like that both movies kind of deal with fate a little bit because Lauren Bacall was like, look, I was just painting. I was out by St. Quentin. I wasn't, I had thought of you that morning for some reason. And I just wanted to go out there and paint. And then like, there you were. And I don't believe in fate, but like, look at this. And same with In a Fair to Remember. That's like a whole part of that is that our fate to, to be together.
1: One of the things that is a cool attribute of that in this movie was, um, Too Marvelous for Words, which, you know, they they play when they first have that first night together. And then he plays it again. They play it again when he's on the phone and she's like, you're, you're playing our song. <laughs> um, but then when she walks in the door at the very end, the restaurant is playing it. So I think that's kind of the very first time that it's like, Oh, it's serendipitous that this song is playing. Like even when he's on the phone and the song is playing, it's because he put in the money to the jukebox and then decided to call her. So like all the other times It was like Okay we're deliberately Playing this song Because like we're trying To send a message of like I love you That we're not actually Going to speak aloud But it was kind of cool That fate kind of But at the very end It's not like she Pressed a button Or deliberately played the song And then walked in And was like Here I am It was just playing When she walked I'm going to burst
0: your bubble Because I think she requested it With the band leaders I think she went up to them And was like Can you play too marvelous For words I think that's what happened But I like your way better I, I like the romance Of your way better Wait does that happen it- in the movie that's what my take on it that she came in and was like hey band later play the song because we just see him we're focused on him with his oh. pir-
1: uh, piragua it's funny because I, it hit me as like a oh yeah right like that would never happen they would be playing it but going off your idea of like there's a fate thing involved there's like a magic thing undercurrent of like this is serendipitous of to happen and this is kind of like meant to be and romantic maybe they're just playing that That would be more romantic
0: and that's a lovelier way of looking at it and also you just made me actually think about the fact so too marvelous for words you're too marvelous words it's like first of all he can't speak for a lot of the movie so it ties in with that idea he's not allowed to talk while he's got the surgery but then also their connection has nothing to do with their words it's like they fall in love because of something bigger than themselves kind of like her believing in his innocence is what like starts getting her to love him um it's never anything that's necessarily like said between them that makes them fall in love it's their presence each other's presence so I you know that's a really great connector and then I want to add another layer to what you said too of uh being it's just too marvelous for words when he starts playing it he sets up another love connection between two other strangers by playing that song because they're the two characters that are like, what's wrong with the world today? Like one has like a small child and the other has a small child. And they're like, yeah, nobody does nothing nice for nobody. And then he puts the coin in and they look at each other and they're kind of like, wait, do you hate everything too? I do hate everything. We're going to be together now. So it's like he sets up another love connection by playing that song.
1: That was a very interesting moment when the guy looks over and he's like, we're both alone. <laughs>
0: That's what he says like
1: hey we got something in common we're both alone. They're like married with two children. No, that she was an aunt. They were separate entities. Oh, that's why he was like you've got your kids and I don't. Yes.
0: And they they were like Aunt Carrie, oh, can we sit?
1: Okay, that makes sense cuz I was like they're your kids too. <laughs>
0: no, they were single and he matched them. He matched them together.
1: Thank you for explaining that to me because once again, I was I was just like not with it. And I thought that they were making a comment about marriage that was like way beyond its time in 1947, where this married couple were like, we're both alone, but I'm glad that you straightened that out for me. It was a love connection and they were single and they're about to get married and live happily ever after, just like you do in 1947.
0: Thank you. I mean, I've seen this film more than once. So like, obviously, once you know, once you know what's going down, your mind opens up to look at other things. That's just how it works. So if you were to watch this again, you'd notice so many other. Things. You're right.
1: I was, yeah. There was a lot of comedy in this yes. uh, movie too. I thought that was pretty funny. Like all the different little side characters were pretty larger than life funny, um, and I thought that was interesting for the dynamic of it being a sort of a murder mystery type of thing. Also, to have that, uh, the fact that so many characters were like comedic roles. Like the, like the taxi driver guy, he he,
0: he was, was And it was funny. also like, it wouldn't just be that people were funny too, it'd be like human elements. So I really appreciated, that's probably why I like this noir so much because it makes room for like comedy and human moments as opposed to like a bleak noir that's like, everything's awful, we're all gonna die, this woman wronged me, death. You know, it's not like that. It's not so bleak. There are, like, other colors in this. There's other, like, moments to explore. So, yes, the cabbie. And what he's saying is funny, but it's real. He hits somebody with his car, and he's like, that's your fault. You did this to me. We got, you know, we got to fix it. And then he finds out it's a cop, and he's like, look, cop, please, uh, please take it easy. I mean, you know, it's very human as well as funny. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even again, I keep mentioning it because I don't have a better example, but uh, the, the crook who's, like, holding him up it's a very serious moment we didn't see it coming we had forgotten about this crook we did not see the blackmail coming Bogart has just escaped from the police but they do turn it into a moment of levity before they get serious again so we have like the intense moment of him shaking Bogart down their drive together where he's got a gun on him and then things lighten up for a minute and they have kind of a silly conversation about like well what'd you do when you were in prison tell me about it he's like really chatting with him (laughs) forgetting for a minute the the position that he's in. And they even utilize that in the plot. When he gets so comfortable around bogart he's like, well when I get that two hundred thousand grand, <gasps> I mean sixty thousand, and that's when Pogart knows something else is up. They they really put humanity in, I think. Yeah, it's a it's a very well thought out, layered script. Um and then even the tabloid commentary, I appreciated. Cause even back then she was like, You're the prosecution was using what they put in the tabloids and that was not like fact. Like they were just destroying you in the tabloids and using it in court, and I didn't think it was true. And I kept thinking of like modern tabloid stories of people that are getting destroyed that don't necessarily deserve it. Like <laughs> this is ridiculous, but I was thinking of Meghan Markle. How about the British press like tore into her for literally no reason other than she was a black woman who married into a royal family. Mm-hmm. And they were, She could never, they would never let her do anything right. They tore down everything about her. Um so I was just thinking about that. Like, yeah, they're even commenting on tabloids back in 1947.
1: That's just like an age-old, awful, horrible thing that I feel like should be... I hope that gets addressed soon for people,
0: you know? Now that I'm thinking about it, like, I see what happened with Meghan Barkle and I wonder how many people are like me that don't buy into the tabloids. And this movie shows us the people that didn't buy in because there are so many people willing to help that help him because they saw what happened in the tabloids.
1: There are so many people willing to help him. It is, that's the one unbelievable thing, is that he keeps meeting people that are just
0: like, Oh, you're a killer! I don't believe you're a killer. Let me go help you. Let me bring you to my yeah. And who also helps him? He's like, yeah, I don't think you're a killer either. Nobody here thinks you're a killer. Even the robbers, like, I don't think you're a killer. You're terrible at all this, and you didn't talk to anyone and said quit, and you're obviously not a killer. But you just made me realize, Ashley. I did not realize this (laughs) till right now. That conversation, the two people that are single, but the one woman that has the kids are having. She says nobody helps anybody anymore. And that's when Bogart turns on the music almost as a reminder of like somebody helped me and then they fall in love. Lots of people helped him. Out of the kindness of their hearts. They even charged him fair prices. He paid $200 for the plastic surgery because that's what he could afford and everybody was cool with it.
1: Actually, he could afford a thousand bucks and that taxi driver was so dope that he was like, yo, he can only pay 200. That That was a really, that taxi driver was such a, nice guy to him
0: we were scared at first because we're like oh no he recognizes him this is going to go really bad and then it goes totally the opposite he's like please let me help you in any way i can
1: yeah who would do that that's strange i would like to follow him for a little bit and see like what his side story was because i know he lived with his like sister and their husband and he was like i could see them killing each other but
0: like was that his motivation I don't know that Um, was a little toxic and we can get to that in the modern lens where I was like yeah that's a little problematic (laughs) but yeah he was a total sweetheart so nice I loved him and I loved um I really wanted to know the surgeon side story because they never get into it he was like yeah I'm not allowed to practice medicine anymore anyway let me do this surgery and I was like "Boo! no you're so good at what you do tell us everything why did you lose your medical license I want to know your story
1: that was part of the horror element, I feel. I lost my license, but I'm about to perform surgery on you. Like, that's pretty scary. <laughs> and I could
0: botch you. Ah. Yeah, that is pretty scary. But I just, you know, I, I just wanted to know more about him. <laughs> him and Sam the cabbie were so compelling. I wanted them to have their own story. Why are they friends? Yeah, we- we're going to to follow that thread. Yeah. So, um, modern lens. We're going to put this modern lens on. What, like, does not hold up today? I mean as we like, usually end up saying, like there are no people of color in this film and no representation of any sort of people of color in this film. It is all white people. And there's also no representation of any LGBTQ people. It's a very white, heterosexual film. And I feel like I say that a lot in the modern lens. Um, I will say yeah. it's not like I don't love the representation of women in general in this. You know?
1: Like, Lauren Bacall's mm. cool. She doesn't really have an arc. She goes from helping
0: him to continuing to follow him and help him out she's like yeah i will give up my entire life to uh go with you in peru i will never come back to america again because i can't just tell me the city man and i'll be there to be fair she had nothing left because she lost her father you know we get the whole i feel like we get a lot of her in exposition like we only understand who she is because of the exposition not because of what she gets to show us in a performance do you know what i mean i do wish that her character got to play around a little bit more with more of an art. And she I love that she is solid and capable. Like anytime you have a solid, capable woman in a movie, I'm like, oh thank God, she's not like a fluttering moron. That's great. That's true. Uh and again, their chemistry together is so good in our happy ending by the beach in Peru. Um so yeah, modern I, I also feel like there is some toxicity in that, like The story that we're learning about him is they basically say, like, Vincent Perry killed his wife. He hit her in the head with an ashtray and it was a murder. Uh, The the whole thing is like, don't believe Madge. Madge is a liar. And I'm like, we should believe women in general. Please, just because this one psychopath lied, please, in general, believe women if they say something has happened to them. (laughs) You know, I don't love like the distrust women, especially like independent women. She was kind of like the witch trope. She was the villainous lady. Yeah, totally. For a modern lens, it's not as bad as so many other things. Was there anything that was really bothering you? Nope. I mean, he was a terrible criminal that was bothering me as part of my modern lens. He was really bad at being criminal. So much of like seeing a movie like this is for me, like
1: seeing it in its time period and, you know, like sort of seeing what the culture uh, believed and felt and Um, just through the lens of what they found entertaining. Like, for example, like I'm visiting here in Florida and everything is so different here because the people down here see the world differently. So, you know, there's like religious stuff in the Michaels and there's, you know what I mean? Like, there's just like stuff that I'm seeing where I'm like, oh, everybody here kind of believes in like a whole different type of lifestyle than I do in New York City. And by that same token, I feel like by watching these old movies, it's hard not to see them and kind of try to, like, learn what that meant about the time period. And obviously, it's a whole different world. So I feel like when I watch these movies, it's it's more about, like, oh, what does this movie, you know, kind of show about, like, their value system, which was almost a hundred years ago. So it makes sense. that The values and the culture has just like totally shifted by what's gone on in the world.
0: It's like its own historical time capsule. And so you take it with a grain of salt kind of thing. Yeah. yeah.
1: I kind of would take it like, just show me just like, I'm just curious, like what was on the minds of the people when they wanted to go see entertainment, when they wanted to go see a noir, like when they wanted to fall in love or believe in things like, do, you know, that they want to see like a, Happy romance. You know, what it, What does it mean about the way that people thought that the world was? And it is interesting to see it through a lens of 100 years later, how much we have changed, you know?
0: I did think it was interesting this time around, too. Just this is like a smaller aspect of it. But the music, every song they play, uh, you know, I was like, oh, my God, I love that song. You know, they're playing Too Marvelous for Words and they're playing um, Someone to Watch Over Me. Yeah. Classics. classics. But at that time, they were new. <laughs> They're listening to, like, new pop songs. Yeah, they're pop songs. And, you know, he's like, what kind of music do you like? And she's like, I like Swing. And you're like, oh, my God. Like, this is all new then. And now it's like the things that (laughs) hold up over time, witnessing them through the lens of the past when they were new is really cool as well.
1: I wish Too Marvelous for Words was a pop song nowadays.
0: What a sexy song. It has the word amorous in it. Not enough songs do. Totally. Anyway. So there's all that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, not as much Modern Lens as Norm i did think it was really interesting now when they talk about um the crook baker when they were like we know he's different because his seats came from a carnival like he had seat covers that were made from an old carnival tent or something oh my god And i was like what does that even mean was he a carnival worker what is I don't understand the implication of this. He's like a vagabond.
1: You know what I mean? Like, he's 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 not one of us from the community, from the suburbs. He's like a traveling, scary person. You know, who knows where he goes when he leaves. Thank
0: you for clarifying that for me.
1: There was that one line that I wish I remembered what it said, but
0: Humphrey Bogart is, um about to kill the crook. He said, you know, it's wonderful when guys like you lose out. It makes guys like me think maybe we've got a chance in this world.
1: That is such a pandering to the crowd
0: line. Like, you know, everyone's like America when they watch that. And then I loved, there was the part where like, you know, he keeps saying he's innocent and everyone believes he's innocent. And then Agnes Moorhead won't go along with his really stupid plan to sign a confession. And he's like, I never thought it was possible <laughs> to kill anybody till this moment. Some of those lines were really
1: tough, I would say. And I think that Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart did a great job of, of making them sound not too over the top and yes. cheesy. Because some of the lines really were difficult to make work.
0: Like this one, one way you die, either way I make money. These are all lines that like you get self-conscious up. Like you, you hear that line and then like you ponder it for a second because you're like, wow, do you really just say that? So since it's told from his perspective, there's not as much conversation. A lot of it is like acting with the eyes. The dialogue feels natural until you have the lines like this. And it's almost like they can't help but be there because this is a 40s movie. Like if we were to just generically make fun of 40s movies, we'd be like, I'm a character, see? But that's like they kept talking. Like there really were lines that were just that kind of put in in the middle of nowhere that... I don't know, they didn't take me out because I love hearing them, but they don't, like, seem to fit in as well with the piece as other things do, you know? I think that at the time, people probably were like,
1: what a badass line. The
0: final line I wrote down was the surgeon line before he, like, does the surgery, and he said, We're all cowards. There's no such thing as courage, only fear. The fear of getting hurt and the fear of dying. That's why human beings live so long. So heavy. And it ties in with, like, the people that probably just returned from war, like you were saying. So that was probably very prescient.
1: This movie felt like two different movies to me. Maybe that's because once he gets his face off, it's it's a different thing. But there's so much put into this movie to really freak people out. And I think that that line is that whole moment of him getting his face messed up or changed <laughs> is, is is meant to freak people out. So
0: since we haven't really seen him physically we have a discomfort. There's a discomfort as an audience. So we feel the discomfort in watching people through a point of view camera and having them stare directly at us. And we feel discomfort not really knowing where we stand because we're not seeing the full picture. We calm down once we see Humphrey Bogart physically. So you're right, it does feel like two movies. It's unsettling. Um, And we we don't see Humphrey Bogart at all until 37 minutes in, and then we see him all bandaged up like the invisible man, you know? So it's almost an hour in, they finally remove his bandages and we finally see his whole face. And it feels like that's a whole other film. And they change the stakes then, because then it's not so much about what you can't see, then it's about the circumstances. That's when they drop in the stuff with Madge. That's when you get insecure about like, oh my God, wait, Madge is here and he's in the bedroom and she might catch him, because she wants to go to the bedroom and Bob's coming. They Add all these extra elements, that's when they change it.
1: Well, they have to, because there's no conflict anymore where there used to be. I mean, the conflict before was this guy's gonna get caught, but once he gets his face changed, the the, he's relieved of that fear. He can leave Lauren Bacall's house. He has no fear of being caught anymore, except that policeman, literally he makes one comment and the policeman is like, I'm taking you to jail.
0: I was like, is that how it used to work? So there were like three suspicious things to the police. One, that this dude is up early. Two, uh, he didn't know when the racing forms were open. Three, he doesn't have a raincoat when he should have a raincoat. And I was like, mm, none of those things equal enough to take somebody in to jail. To jail, because he he must he must suspect that it's Vincent Perry somehow. I don't know. It does seem like a lot. And I hate when he's judging him for shaking because of what you had mentioned earlier because I was thinking of vets because that's a theme in a lot of these films where like vets come home and have trauma and they show it a lot of times through shaking. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, he's Mm -hmm. of the age where he could have just fought in the war. Like that's not a cool assumption to make that, you know, like judging him for shaking, I don't know. I don't think that shows guilt that could literally show like I am traumatized from being in the war.
1: It really makes you like love Humphrey Bogart though, doesn't it? Like when he shakes like that, oh, man, I was just like, this poor guy. He's so not in control. He's so obviously the victim. Like, it was great to see him shake like that. To
0: not be like, I'm macho, macho (laughs) man.
1: There's something great about seeing a man who, somebody that we know is a hero at heart, but just, like, is shaking because of all the unfairness of the world. Which is why when he wins, and I love that he makes that comment, like you know, we need good guys need to win. So that's why we that's why people go to the movies because they they want to feel like the good guys are gonna win.
0: Although you just also made me remember that even though he wins, he doesn't totally win. He doesn't win all the way because he he doesn't get cleared. He does have to escape to South America. So he wins because he escapes and because he gets to be with Lauren Bacall and she chooses him. That's how he wins, but he doesn't get everything he wants. And that's so interesting that they would put that that in. You know what? I think it's gonna be like fine in be <laughs> that beach looked great. <laughs> yeah. You
1: know what I mean? Like it looked like a paradise there. And speaking for myself. I just think Peru would be a great <laughs> a great place to have to escape to.
0: I also just realized why he didn't change his name. He didn't want to change it because he doesn't want to lose his link to Lauren Bacall. She names him Alan Linnell. And that was such a sweet scene. Why
1: does she do that? She's like, your eyes are quiet now. And a quiet name is Alan. And I was like, did she just say, what is she saying? Is she on drugs? Like, what does she mean? Alan is a quiet name. Your eyes are quiet now. Like,
0: yeah, what's she talking about? I don't know. I liked it. Maybe Alan is a quiet name. It just name. seems like a name of a sweet person. That's not going to, like, beat anybody up. It's not like rock or, you know, chab. I don't know. It's <laughs> not something like... It's no Humphrey. <laughs> and I love that he was like, nope, that reminds me of someone else's name. Can't have that. Cause that's like the most human conversation ever. I feel like people have that when they're naming like children and pets. <laughs> like, nope, can't use this one. I knew a bad Alan when I was in third grade. Sure, sure. That's a lie. I only know one Alan and he's nice.
1: They took such a long period of time to be like, no, I'm going to rename you. And even if you change it, Like, you'll know that, like, you've had this name. Like, and they go on and on about how she's going to, like, rename him. And then it's the most random thing I've ever heard. And I just, like, don't know why we took a moment for that.
0: Because to me, it was, like, her putting her mark on him. Because they can't be together. They can't love each other. So she's putting her stamp on him. And, like, I'm giving you your name.
1: She's like, I will name you Leslie Howard. Everyone should be named Leslie Howard. It's girls, boys, <laughs> all the humans, and and you know, everything in between.
0: Yeah, literally, doesn't matter. Just be named Leslie Howard. We need to one more time, shout out Lauren because costumes. She looks fabulous, my God. Is she like six, eight? I don't, she's very statuesque as they say. I don't know how tall she is, but she appears grand. She's 5'9". Just like Cindy Crawford, right? Doesn't share and Clueless say like, I want to be 5'9", like Cindy Crawford. And all the coffee. I really liked the coffee in this. They drink out of those beautiful cups and he drank through the straw. There's so much coffee in this. Real prop coffee. It looked good. Yeah, that was so important. I'm so glad I brought that into the podcast in the end. <laughs> <laughs> Just end it there. Just don't even say anything. Just
1: the coffee was so good looking. Period. Um,
0: So we're going to head on to the double feature portion of this podcast um I wrote for the double feature all the B&Bs all the Bogart and Bacalls. so they are fantastic because they made four movies together and not one of them's a dud they're all good yes if I recall I feel like Key Largo is very good and we almost watched that instead of this But this is like, I like this one better. Personally, I know that that's probably the wrong opinion. And there's people at home going, no, Key Largo is better. Whatever. You can watch Key Largo. It's great too. Um, (laughs) To Have and Have Not and The Big Sleep are both good. I think I prefer To Have and Have Not over The Big Sleep because The Big Sleep is very confusing. But it's good. They're all good. Um, So those are theirs. Go check them out i would also pair this with a movie called the list of adrian messenger because that's another gimmick movie so this movie kind of has that gimmick that we kept mentioning of like we're seeing it through the point of view camera work um oh which i also wanted to mention this the point of view camera work is so solid and the only time it doesn't work they were really smart about making it look like blinks like when they would um switch a shot it almost looked like we were seeing it from his point of view but he would blink a little bit so I thought that was clever and the only time they couldn't quite get the lighting the same was when they went to the back of Lauren Bacall's head and then panned out again and you could clearly see that it was like not the same shot like they kind of messed up with like the lighting that day or something but anyway they did a great job with the camera work and that was the gimmick here in the list of Adrian Messenger The gimmick is that they have this cast of every famous male actor in, like, the 1960s you can think of, but they made them unrecognizable under disguises. So you're, like, watching Frank Sinatra and don't know that it's Frank Sinatra, and, like, you're looking at Tony Curtis and uh, Burt Lancaster, and you you can't recognize them. So that's kind of... And then Kirk Douglas is constantly shapeshifting in that movie. So that's another, like, murder mystery gimmick movie. Um, And then I would say... In a Lonely Place, which I still have not seen. The book is fantastic, and the book would pair really well with this movie. So In a Lonely Place is a Humphrey Bogart movie that's a murder mystery. So I bet you it's gonna pair really well with this, just based on how much I love the book. And then The Maltese Falcon would pair really well with this, especially, ooh, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. But I mean, the parallels with the end, both women die through a window. I mean, come on, except for everybody hates Madge and nobody hates Wonderly. That's the only difference. (laughs) Dying through a window is so dramatic, my God. And then I would say, um, The Petrified Forest, I mentioned earlier, Delmar Daves wrote the script. It's like a love story in unpredictable circumstances. And um, Humphrey Bogart is actually very sexy in it. And Leslie Howard's in it, and so is Betty Davis. And then (laughs) if you want a 90s double feature, I've never seen Face Off, but oh boy, I bet Face Off would be very funny to watch with this movie because they both involve people on the run getting plastic surgery to alter their appearance so they can continue to be on the run. That
1: is so specific.
0: Do you have any um, films that you would add to the list? I love that
1: you do a little pairing at the end of the podcast, and I think you really covered all the different great options for people, so I'll, I'll I'll leave you with that.
0: It was such a treat to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for
1: having me. It's always a blast.
0: Everyone at home, we'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Ashley Blanchett. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on Anchor.fm to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening.